Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Baxt, and I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation, in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Sackett versus EPA is one of the most important environmental cases in recent memory. Oral arguments in the case were held last October and now a decision will be coming in the first half of 2023. This is a case that could finally provide some clarity as to what waters are regulated under the Clean Water Act. For the court to provide clarity, it will require examining the meaning of the term navigable waters, and more specifically the language waters of the United States, or WOTUS, that makes up the definition of navigable waters. For decades, the EPA and Army Corps of Engineers have taken a very broad approach when defining the scope of this regulatory power. This approach has led to significant concerns regarding federal intrusion into state and local matters, federal gutting of private property rights, and overreach. Further, there's been significant confusion for farmers, home builders, local governments, and pretty much anyone affected by the Clean Water Act. Judge Jane Kelly, who is on the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, in a concurrence explained regarding the unique aspects of the Clean Water Act, quote, most laws do not require the hiring of expert consultants to determine if they even apply to you or your property, end quote. Justice Anthony Kennedy explained, quote, the Clean Water Act is unique in both being quite vague in its reach, arguably unconstitutionally vague, and certainly harsh in the civil and criminal sanctions it puts into practice, end quote. Making these issues even more challenging in recent years is the fact that Various administrations have developed numerous WOTUS regulations, including the Biden administration, which recently published a final rule without even waiting on the Supreme Court's decision in Sackett. This just adds to the confusion. So today, we're pleased to be joined by Charles Yates, who's an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, to help us make sense of the case and the WOTUS issue. The Pacific Legal Foundation represents the Sacketts in the case. So let's get right to it. First, Charles, thank you for being here. Hey, Darren, thanks for having me on the podcast. We, uh, PLF, we really do appreciate all the work that Heritage is doing on these important uh, environment and energy issues. So it's really, really a privilege to have the opportunity to be on today to discuss the, the WOTUS issue with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, let's get going. Uh, Charles, can you just tell us the status of the case? Is there any sense then when we're going to get an opinion from the court? Yes, yes. So as as you mentioned in your uh, in your introduction, there argument was held in October on October third, to be precise. So that means the case was submitted for the court's consideration that day. So we could really get an opinion any time between now and when the the court's current term ends in in June. Perhaps a realistic prediction as we might get a, a decision early in the spring, but it really is difficult to sort of read the tea leaves on timing. I think much of it. Uh, would probably come down to the unanimity or, or lack thereof of the court's decision. Of course, a complex decision with multiple opinions will, will take a little bit longer. 
Hopefully it won't be, they're not arguing too much. They can come get it out soon. <laughs> That's right. I think the, the sooner the better. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about the WOTUS in, issue just in general. Can you just provide us some brief background on why there's been such a challenge defining what it means for means by waters of the United States? Yes, yeah, and, and you, you teed that up quite nicely in your, your introduction, so uh, I will try my, my best to keep it brief, but it is uh, something of a saga. So uh, the WOTUS issue really it begins with the passage of the Clean Water Act in 1972. Now, uh, Congress passed the Clean Water Act uh, ostensibly to combat water pollution in, in the nation's many navigable waters, and what it does is it creates a, a federal permitting regime which is administered by EPA and the United States Army Corps of Engineers. And specifically, that permitting regime regulates the discharge of pollutants into so-called navigable waters or waters of the United States. This is the, the definitional term that, that you mentioned a, a couple minutes ago. And that definitional phrase is really the key because it represents the jurisdictional limit of the federal agency's authority to regulate. So sort of so far, so good. What we have here, we have a federal statute the Clean Water Act, and in that federal statute, there's a, a, a limited grant of authority to two federal agencies to regulate. Um, that statutory term properly limits the, the, that grant of authority. And what that means, so it goes, is that if a discharge goes into a navigable water, then it can be regulated by the federal agencies. The permitting regime is implicated. Uh, if a discharge goes into something that is not a navigable water for purpose of the statute, then it's not regulated and, uh, by the feds and regulation is left to the states. However, starting in the mid-1970s, EPA and the Army Corps began interpreting this phrase, the operative phrase, incredibly broadly. Uh, they sort of eschewed any uh, construction uh, of a, a limitation on their authority and rather began interpreting it as a sort of all-encompassing grant of authority to regulate all manner of land use activities. Uh, by 1986, the agencies were interpreting that term navigable waters well beyond any, uh, any reasonable or, or sort of commonly understood uh, interpretation of the phrase. Instead, they were interpreting it as a virtually limitless grant of authority to regulate activities in every tributary, wetland, ditch, pond, puddle, you know, damp space in the entire country. And at the time, uh, many observers uh, noted that the, the Act had really, in, in just 10 short years, taken on the character of a federal land use or zoning code. Now, the upshot of that was, of course, that landowners were now required to seek federal permission for all manner of harmless and legitimate land use activities. And I guess getting into the, the challenge you mentioned in, in establishing the scope... The Supreme Court has now addressed, since 1985, has addressed the scope of federal authority under the Clean Water Act three times. However, after each opinion, each decision, win or lose, the agencies have found a way to pivot uh, and ratchet, continue ratcheting up their own authority to regulate. So that's where the, the challenge you mention uh, really lies, in that Congress set the terms of authority when it passed the statute in 1972, but we have two federal agencies that are absolutely hell-bent on ignoring any limitation imposed upon their authority by Congress, by the Supreme Court, or even the Constitution. And instead, they've consistently used the regulatory process uh, to ra radically expand their power um, at the expense of, of ordinary Americans' property rights. Well, that's a great explanation. And, and let me ask a kind of simple question. Why is this issue important? 
Yeah, so it's certainly an important issue, uh, truly important. There are a few reasons why that's the case. A couple of them more specific, one more broad. The first reason, sort of specific reason why the issue is so important is that the permitting scheme authorised by the Clean Water Act uh, is backed by the threat of ruinous civil and criminal penalties. I mean, the Clean Water Act is a, is a truly draconian statute when you look at it. Um, a landowner could be fined millions of dollars or even sent to jail uh, for any violation of the statute. And that includes merely accidental or, or negligent violations of the statute. So for that reason, it's crucially important that the bounds of federal authority be known to landowners and also crucially important that they do not continue to grow. A second reason why the issue is so important uh, is the astronomical compliance costs uh, in order to, to adhere to the statute's requirements. If a landowner's property is regulated, what that means is that they need to seek federal permission to do virtually anything productive on their property. And that's it's not a trifling issue. There was a, a 2002 study put, up, put out by Professor Sunding and Zilberman. And in that study, they determined that the average cost of a, of a Clean Water Act permit is over $270,000 once you factor everything in. And that's, keep in mind, that's in 2002 dollars. And of course, once granted... Uh, once you've been through that process, once you've ponied up your $270,000 just to go through the process, uh, there's no guarantee that the project is going to go ahead as planned. I mean, it, the permit could require significant modification to the point uh, where a project is no longer economically feasible. And on this point, I don't want to speak too long, but more broadly, this issue really cuts to the heart of our entire constitutional order. In the United States, we have a separation of powers, and under that separation of powers, it's Congress, our elected representatives in Congress, and not unaccountable bureaucrats in executive branch agencies uh, that have the authority to make policy for the country. But here, uh, this continued expansion of authority that the agencies have claimed, it's really EPA twisting a congressional policy, a congressional grant of authority, well beyond Congress's intent. I mean, they've twisted the term navigable waters to mean dry land. So again, here we have agencies, and this is a, a sort of frequent problem that we see right across the federal bureaucracy, is we have federal agencies using the regulatory process to make laws to govern themselves and the regulated public. So Charles, you know, talking about congressional intent, you, you know, when... Congress passed the Clean Water Act, and the statute itself makes it very clear that Congress envisioned states playing playing the leading role when it comes to addressing water pollution. But the agencies kind of seem to be ignoring that. What's your take on that? Yeah, that's that's precisely uh, precisely the case. You know, it's it's fundamental that in our constitutional order, uh, state and local governments retain primary authority over land use planning and through this continued expansion of federal authority under the Clean Water Act, what we've, we've really seen is the creation of a, a federal land use planning agency that's, that sort of usurped that traditional local authority of the states. Charles, I'd like to turn out to a 2006 case called Rapanos versus United States. And Justice Scalia and three current justices, actually, uh, Roberts, Thomas, and Leto, issued a plurality opinion in Rapanos that arguably would have provided much-needed clarity and would have stopped inappropriate federal overreach. But it was, unfortunately, just a plurality opinion. 
And Justice Kennedy wrote a concurrence in the case, creating what is referred to as the significant nexus test. So first, what did the plurality say in Rapanos? Yes. So in the plurality opinion, as you know, Justice Scalia in that case penned a plurality opinion, which determined uh, that the agencies don't have boundless authority to regulate virtually everything. And he, Justice Scalia set forth a, a clear standard that would limit regulation under the Act to congressional intent to regulate true waters. And that's waters understood in the conventional sense of the term. Meaning, in, in Justice Scalia's words, relatively permanent or continuously flowing bodies of water. What one might think of as you know, streams, rivers, oceans, lakes, and the like. Now, as to wetlands, Justice Scalia did recognise that there is some room for agency regulation of wetlands, but only incidentally to the regulation of true waters. Justice Scalia uh, rightly recognised that wetlands are not by waters. By definition, they're not waters. They're wetlands. They're lands that might at, at some point have, have some degree of moisture on them. So he concluded that wetlands are presumptively outside the scope of the statute. But what he also recognised is that there is often a line-drawing problem when present when we talk about wetlands, particularly shoreline wetlands that might exist on the boundary of a true water. There's Justice Scalia recognised that there's often some ambiguity in drawing the precise line between where the true water ends and where the wetland begins. So he recognised that, that some regulation of those uh, directly abutting wetlands uh, is permissible, uh, sort of incidental to the regulation of the true waterway. But importantly, he concluded that the, in order to regulate those wetlands, the agencies must demonstrate uh, that the wetlands are inseparably bound up with and contain a, a continuous surface water connection uh, to, the, to the true water, such that you really can't tell where one ends and the other begins. Yeah, and that's critical. And so let's turn to what Justice Kennedy said in, the, in Rapana. So what is Kennedy's uh, significant nexus test? And, and I guess another question to that is, is the test even workable? Yeah, very good question. So yes, as, as you know, Justice uh, Kennedy, he concurred in the judgment in Rapano. So, so Kennedy agreed that this historic kind of we can regulate absolutely everything approach uh, was not permissible under the statute. Uh, but he didn't agree with the plurality's test. What he came up with instead was this very broad, significant nexus test that practically didn't change the state of affairs that much from how, how it was in 1986. Uh, and under that test, uh, Justice Kennedy concluded that a wetland or, or another damp patch, a puddle, a small tributary, need only have a, a vaguely defined significant nexus to some downstream water. So what, what that means is that for the agencies to, to regulate any area of the country that is damp, all they need to do is demonstrate that the area could somehow, in, in some way, you know, perhaps through its role in, in a broader watershed, directly or indirectly affect a downstream true navigable water. And uh, it, it's a good question regarding workability because the standard is, is highly problematic. And I think before we even note the, the workability of it, the, the standard is problematic because it's utterly divorced from the text of the statute itself. I mean... It reads waters to mean whatever affects waters. It, it completely twists the operative uh, definitional phrase in the statute. But, uh, you know, as, as noted, it's also extremely unworkable and difficult to implement because uh, 
in practice, it requires the use of specialized equipment and technical expertise to draw this connection, this significant nexus. So a landowner alone uh, cannot possibly determine where there's a significant nexus present. And instead, uh, they're required to spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on experts and consultants uh, in order uh, to divine the existence or, or lack thereof of, uh, of an invisible and, and highly subjective significant nexus. So even during Rapanos in, in, the, in the opinion itself, the, the opinion, the plurality opinion at least, points out, highlights a GAO, Government Accountability Office, at the time General Accounting Office, but GAO report, talking about kind of the in- inconsistent application of the law and it's interesting that, you know, Kenny comes up with this significant nexus test, which is kind of just lends itself to subjective and kind of vague enforcement of the law. And so I guess my point is, even if you can divine significant nexus, the truth is one expert can figure say something significant, there's a significant nexus, another expert can come in and say, that's not true. Um, so... I guess that's the whole point. It's really, it becomes so vague and subjective, it's almost like allows the government all kinds of flexibility to kind of apply it the way they want to when the time comes and and to to achieve its objectives. I'm not sure what your take is on that. No, that's a a very good point because, I mean, if you look at the agency guidance documents for for applying significant nexus, if you look at this this new rule, which I suppose we'll get into a bit later regarding the... The Biden administration's application of the significant nexus test is the uh, the list of factors that they claim they can consider in divining the significant nexus is, I mean, it's effectively endless, right? It's sort of any type of information that somehow in some way might indicate that this nexus is present. So the government has an extraordinary flexibility uh, in order to apply this test uh, to find that, that an area is jurisdictional. They have a whole number of factors at, at their hands that they can just pull up and 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 reach that conclusion and it and it's really landowners that are often blindsided because a landowner couldn't couldn't possibly uh know or, or understand how how the government is going about that so just to kind of follow up um so we were talking about how vague and subjective the law is and and, and just and as you just pointed out property really have no idea that they could be violating, violating the law for even engaging in normal activities, you know, ordinary activities like farming. Um, we've kind of discussed the problems of vagueness. I just want to see if you had anything else to add on it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we've discussed it a little bit and sort of dovetails with our discussion. The significant nexus test really is fatally vague because there's simply no way for a landowner using their, their ordinary powers of perception uh, to ascertain whether there's a significant nexus between a, a puddle on their property and, and some downstream water. And, I mean, you just look at some of the, the cases that have been brought, the, the downstream waters to which a, a damp area might have a significant nexus could be could be tens or even hundreds of miles away. Um, so that's extremely problematic. And I think for the, the main reason I think I'd want, want to hit on in terms of quite how problematic this is, is just going back to what I mentioned about the enormous liability that the Clean Water Act subjects landowners to. I mean, a landowner could face, under the significant next test, a landowner could face financial ruin, millions of dollars of penalties. They could even be sent to jail uh, for violating a statute they 
didn't know and could not have possibly known they were subject to. And that, you know, at the end of the day, that's really not how the law is supposed to work in a liberal democracy. I mean, it's fundamental uh, that citizens be given notice of the law before they can be punished under it. Charles, I wanted to bring up a, a point that I think is worth mentioning here is that there are various permits, and for a lot of the permits that we're talking about are referred to as Section 404 permits. And I think it's important for listeners to know that we're not dealing with like a business dumping toxic waste into a pristine water. When I talk about like ordinary activities, we're talking about like dirt moving types of activities. So it's not pollution in the in the nor- in the sense of that some people might think. So like if you that's you know so like if you engage in like construction or like I said farming or that that could have implications and be thought of as kind of that discharge of into navigable waters. And I just see your I think it'd be good to kind of point that out to people because I think sometimes they're like well if they're polluting and it's toxic waste or whatever then what's the big deal? And I think it's important to understand that's not most of the time, we're not even talking about that. That That's right. That's a, a really important point whenever we're discussing. Because as, as you say, oftentimes when you think about pollution, I mean, you're thinking about mobile pollutants that are highly toxic, you know, something like mercury, right, that's going to float downstream into a, into a waterway and cause all, all manner of problems. But the, the Clean Water Act, um, it it creates two, two separate permitting regimes. One regime for... Uh, sort of mobile pollutants, true pollutants, you might think of in the ordinary sense that are discharged uh, into waterways. But it also creates a, a dredge and fill permitting regime. That's the Section 404 permitting regime you just mentioned. And that's administered by the, the Army Corps of Engineers. And under that dredge and fill permitting regime, the agencies claim extraordinarily broad uh, broad authority to the point where um, you know, there's documents from the early days of the statute where the, the agencies were claiming that even riding a bicycle across a jurisdictional wetland, uh, the fact that you're kicking up dirt and redepositing it uh, into the wetland itself would constitute um, would constitute the discharge of a pollutant into a quote-unquote navigable water. And that, that obviously has significant implications for, for farming activities and ordinary land use because we've seen... Uh, over the course of the the act's history, we've seen really significant enforcement actions and 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 civil suits against farmers and home builders uh, for engaging in really quintessentially ordinary land use activities. I mean, at PLF, we had a client a few years ago uh, who was subject to an enforcement action, a farmer uh, for plowing a dry field uh, to plant a winter a winter wheat crop. That's really not what you, you'd think of when you're thinking about the discharge of pollutants, but that's, that's evidently the, the authority that the agencies claim under the Act. Yeah, I mean, some of these stories are kind of absurd, and some people will be like, oh, there's no way. But yeah, there is a way. This is exactly what's happening, and there's a lot more stories out there. The, the agencies are certainly not shy to kind of stretch their authority and their enforcement. So let, let's we've talked about the vagueness and what I would call, quite honestly, the Kafka-esque nature of the Clean Water Act. Um, so let's turn to the Sacketts. Can you tell us about the Sacketts and their property and, and the experience that they've had with the Clean Water Act? Yes, yeah, and, and, and Darren, I, I'm always glad to talk about the, the Sacketts case because really the, the Sacketts case, uh, it, it really emphasizes everything that's gone wrong with the Clean Water Act. And I think in particular it provides... A rather uh, useful example 
of exactly how vague and capricious the significant nexus test is. It's sort of a good real-world example. So the Sacketts own a 0.63-acre lot. Uh, the lot's uh, located near Priest Lake in the Idaho Panhandle, way up there near, uh, near Canada. Now, importantly, the lot's residentially zoned. It contains a sewer hookup, and it's located within a built-out residential subdivision surrounded by houses. The Sackett's Clean Water Act ordeal, and it truly, truly has been an ordeal, I think Kafkaesque is, uh, is a great way to, to describe it. That ordeal began in 2007 when the Sackett's, uh, they obtained all of the necessary local permits to build a modest single-family home on the lot. Uh, in April of 2007, they broke ground, and shortly after they broke ground, Officials from EPA and the Army Corps entered the lot, absolutely blindsided the Sacketts, and directed that all work be stopped. Uh, six months later, uh, the EPA followed up by issuing a compliance order to the Sacketts. And in that compliance order, and I should note a compliance order, many listeners familiar with, with how that process works, but it's, it's essentially an order from a government agency either telling you to do something or refrain from doing something, often at pains of immense liability. So that, that compliance order, it asserted that the Sackett's home lot contains wetlands regulated as navigable waters under the Clean Water Act, uh, and it asserted that the Sackett's had violated the act by trying to build a home on their residentially zoned property without first obtaining federal permission, and federal permission in the form of that 404 dredge and fill permit that we were, we were just discussing. Uh, the order also required that the Sacketts engage in substantial remediation of the lot, and critically, it threatened them with tens of thousands of dollars per day in civil penalties should they fail to comply with the order. And the Sacketts were, were understandably deeply confused that their dry lot could somehow be a navigable water subject to federal authority. So they took the agencies to court, and for 16 years now, uh, including now two trips to the Supreme Court, they've been fighting this illegal land grab. And I guess one thing I want to note before moving on is there's one particular aspect of the Sackett's case that really emphasizes just sort of, sort of how... Uh, how broad EPA believes its authority is and sort of how untouchable this agency believes it is. So the Sacketts have already been to the Supreme Court once. And the reason they already have already been to the Supreme Court is that upon filing their lawsuit uh, challenging this federal authority, EPA claimed that the Sacketts don't even have the right to, to challenge the compliance order. They argue that the compliance order was essentially untouchable. So the Sacketts have already been up and down the judiciary once. Uh, securing a unanimous decision in 2012 from the Supreme Court that they even have the right to take EPA to court. <laughs> That's incredible. So how has the EPA asserted that the Sackett's property includes wetlands that should be regulated under, under the Clean Water Act? And I mean, how do they make that connection? Yeah, well, Darren, so yeah, uh, buckle up for this, uh, because I think this is, this is really what I was uh, talking about when I sort of mentioning how the case demonstrates sort of the practical scope of the significant nexus test application. So EPA claims that there exists a significant nexus between these alleged wetlands on the Sackett's lot and Priest Lake, which is a, a lake nearby. So I, get, I guess I, I paint something of a picture. So the Sackett's lot, so the north of the Sackett's lot, 
uh, the property is bound by an elevated paved road. That road separates Sackett's lot from a very small roadside ditch, which uh, drains some runoff. To the south of the Sackett's lot, uh, the property is bound by another road as well as a row of houses, and that road and row of houses separates the Sackett's lot from Priest Lake. So, fundamentally, uh, there is not and there cannot be any surface connection uh, between the Sackett's lot and anything plausibly resembling a water, be that the, the small ditch, which is itself questionably a water, or Priest Lake itself. The property is totally isolated. EPA, however, argues that there exists a small subsurface flow from wetlands on the other side of the road to the Sackett's lot. So importantly, this flow doesn't go from the Sackett's lot to any wetlands or to the ditch. It comes the other way. EPA believes it can aggregate the Sackett's lot with uh, those, those wetlands and the ditch on the other side of the road. And then it claims that because that ditch runs uh, several thousand feet to the west of the lot uh, into a creek that then sort of in an attenuated way ultimately flows into Priest Lake. EPA claims that due to this attenuated daisy chain, sort of daisy chaining the, the Sackett's lot to these features on the other side of the road and the ditch and then make, you know, sort of mapping out this connection downstream to Priest Lake, EPA takes the position that the Sackett's lot it's, has a significant nexus to Priest Lake and it, it therefore is itself independently regulable as a navigable water. So, I mean, it's, I think it's a good practical example of exactly how broad the agency's claim of authority is here. So A connects to B, B connects to C, C connects to D, to, you know, something along those So lines. on and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what is, so getting to the, just the legal question at issue, what is the legal question before the court? So the, the question that the court will be considering is what is the proper test for determining whether wetlands are, quote-unquote, waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act? So what, what the court will be addressing is this, this broader issue that we've been discussing, which is uh, when and under what circumstances uh, can the agencies assert authority over wetlands uh, such as those alleged to exist on the Sackett slot? The Ninth Circuit below uh, determined that the significant nexus test is the appropriate test, um, and the Sackett's, uh, the Supreme Court granted cert to address that question. So you, you talked about wetlands. Do, do you think the court, I, I, I kind of think that they'll, they'll have to kind of ultimately, well, they might most likely have to define or figure out what the, the term itself, waters in the United States means, not just, you know, the wetlands issue, but kind of a broader yeah, so there's certainly a potential for the decision to go beyond the, the pure wetlands question. It's a question of how broadly or narrowly the Supreme Court decides to rule, but uh, the, the question presented, it, it goes to this broader waters of the United States question, and, and so responding to that question, the Sackets have proposed a, a two-step framework uh, for federal wetlands authority. Under the first step, the Sackets... Uh, argue that in order for a wetland to be regulable, it must be physically connected via a surface water connection to a true water. Uh, so again, that's a, a feature that in, in ordinary parlance might qualify as a stream, ocean, river, lake. So it's 
this first step, this question of, of when wetlands can be regulated is essentially the plurality approach from Rapanos. But uh, given the, the question presented uh, from the Supreme Court, the Sacketts have also proposed a second step, and that second step goes somewhat beyond what was decided in Rapanos. So under this second step, uh, the Sacketts argue that the water to which the wetland abuts must be of the United States. So the Sacketts argue that for a water to be of the United States, it must be subject to Congress's traditional channels of commerce authority. So it must be either a traditional navigable water that's capable of, of serving, of you know, transporting goods in interstate commerce, or it must be an intrastate navigable in fact water uh, that's capable of serving as a link in, in a larger interstate commercial transportation network. So on this, the, the question about what the court would do, if the court reaches the second step, I mean, that would have implications well beyond pure wetland jurisdiction because it would implicate the entirety of the federal government's authority under the Clean Water Act. So, I mean, really, it's, it's a question of how broadly or narrowly the Supreme Court resolves the case. Um, and as I noted... Uh, the Sackett's lot has no surface water connection to, to anything plausibly resembling a water. So it would be possible for the Supreme Court to to resolve the case just on that first step by determining that the, the road itself cuts off jurisdiction and not really having to go beyond that. But there, there is room for the, for the court to address the, the second step. So I think you've kind of addressed this, but just to kind of apply the facts here to the legal arguments... So why would you argue that the Sackett's property is not a regulated wetland? Yes, yeah, so the, the, the primary reason, you know, going back to the text of the statute, is that the Clean Water Act uh, does not provide the agencies with, with any independent authority to regulate wetlands sort of in and of themselves. Uh, it permits the agencies to regulate waters. Um, and there's nothing in the operative text of the statute authorizing the agencies to regulate non-water features like wet, like wetlands. I mean, the, the authority to regulate wetlands is purely incidental to the power to regulate true waters. So going back to the, the line drawing problem that we just discussed, uh, wetlands can only be regulated where there's no real way to delineate where a true water ends and the wetland begins. And that's simply not the case with the Sackett's lot, to, to the extent that there may be wetlands on the Sackett's lot, uh, those alleged wetlands uh, have no connection whatsoever to, to anything that could be plausibly considered a water. I mean, there's an elevated road and a row of houses. So to cl clarify and also to stress, I mean, the Clean Water Act is not really focused on what we want to regulate. It's not a wetlands regulation law. It's a regulation of navigable waters and to the extent that you've got these wetlands that you can't, that are kind of connected, abutting, okay, that might be permissible. But it's it's because that they're connected to these navigable waters that we're even talking about the wetlands. Yes, that's that's correct. I mean, the statute speaks quite clearly in terms of navigable waters defined as the waters of the United States. There's no mention of wetlands in the in the, the core definitional text of the statute. And I mean, that's a, a really important thing to remember. I mean, there might be policy reasons why Congress would, would want to regulate wetlands. 
But it didn't do that here in the Clean Water Act. If it had wanted to, uh, to create a, a broad uh, federal wetlands statute, then it would have done so. It wouldn't have spoken in terms of, of navigable waters. So it's really a, a, a question of whether wetlands might somehow be, be regulated incidentally to, to what the agencies truly have the power to regulate, which is waters. So, so Charles, and kind of in my view, the the justices should. This is what I like the justices to do is they should copy and paste their upon us plurality opinion and just call it a day and go home, or maybe get go get some beers. Um, and the three justices on that opinion, as I said, are on the court today. I, it was a great opinion, a bright of clarity. Do you think that the court could do something like this? Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a good question, and uh, following the the oral argument, it's a it's a question we've we've all been pondering at at some length. So, the Sackers have certainly advocated for the court to adopt the pluralities test, um, at least on that first step of the of their proposed test. I mean, the Sackers also asked the court to go somewhat further by dre- addressing this question of when a water is of the United States, and that's not a question that was resolved in in Rapanos. Uh, but the Sackett's first step is is essentially the Rapanos pluralities test. So a complete win for the Sackett's would mean adoption of the pluralities test. Um, and, you know, as we've sort of been discussing over the past couple of minutes, um, the pluralities approach to wetlands jurisdiction is really the, the only approach to wetlands authority that's consistent with the statute's text. So I would certainly hope that the Supreme Court adopts it. That said, it's... It's something of, of an open question as to, to what well, it's a little difficult to read the, the tea leaves too closely. You know, as you say, there are, are three justices, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Alito and, and Justice Thomas, who joined the plurality opinion that are still on the court. Uh, but it seems that at least th- through the course of oral argument, there was some questioning and perhaps a, a, a little skepticism from, from some other justices who might be needed to form a majority on on the operative test. So I I, I suppose it's a, a we shall see at this point. What do you think the court's going to do with the uh, significant nexus test? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the, the most noteworthy takeaways from the oral argument were, were the issues dealing with significant nexus. I mean, it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot you know, I was in the in the courtroom at the oral argument, and I've I've thought a lot about the the approach the justices took to the questioning on significant nexus, and the conclusion I, I've sort of reached, and and people I've spoken with as well, is that, at least to me, there, there was almost a, a universal skepticism towards a significant nexus test uh, from the bench. Now, could be proven wrong late, later down the line, but that's the the impression I got because I mean, even some of the justices that, that took significant issue with other parts of the Sackett's argument, uh, even those justices share, seem to share many of the Sackett's concerns about these fundamental vagueness and notice problems uh, that we were just discussing. And I mean, there was one point in the oral argument where the question of, of the acts containing criminal penalties was raised, and, and you almost noticed a, a marked shift in the questioning after that point. So it seemed there was some recognition that something is, as vague as a significant nexus test um, is, is highly problematic in a statute containing criminal penalties. One of my concerns is that they may try to find some type of middle ground, and to me this just makes no 
sense because it, it wouldn't provide the clarity that's needed or properly recognize that you know, kind of the states are supposed to play the leading role when addressing water pollution. And I, I think there needs to be some bright lines drawn. We talked about a lot of these issues already. You know, an ordinary person should be able to know the natural water body. That something's a natural water body. You don't need to get a hydrologist or aerial photographs to figure out what many times is just dry land, and then you figure out, oh, but that's a regulated water because this aerial photograph has is connected A to B to C to D, whatever. So I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm concerned that some type of middle ground could occur, and I'm not even sure what that might look like, and I'm not sure they would, the justices would know what it looked like. I'm hoping they won't do that. I think that just makes it even messier. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so... Yeah, Darren, I, I certainly share your concerns about the prospect of a sort of amorphous middle ground type of test, you know, somewhere between significant nexus and and the plurality test, because really, um, and and you touched on this quite well uh, when you when you introduced the subject matter of the podcast, is really in the years since Rapanos, we've had multiple rulemakings, all manner of confusion. So really, if there's nothing else that we can take away from the, the sort of last 15 years, since 2006, it's the enormous uh, practical difficulties that have come about as a result of the Rapanos court uh, failing to, to issue a, a majority opinion that, that created clear, bright-line standards. Um, so I would hope that, that the court recognizes that another, you know, another Rapanos or something like it will really just lead to another 15 years of confusion. And, and I mean, D Damien Schiff, counsel for my colleague Damien Schiff, who's counsel for the, for the Sackets who argued the case, I mean, there was one question where I think he put it really well, where he noted that if, if we get something like a middle ground test, he could guarantee that we're going to be right back at the Supreme Court in, in 15 years' time arguing about it. So I really hope there's no middle ground test. Now, that said, uh, certain justices seem to indicate an interest in it. I mean, Justice Kagan in particular uh, directly asked counsel for both parties whether there was the possibility of some kind of middle way type of test. But uh, notably, neither party was... was willing or able to to set forth what a middle ground test would look like. So I, I would hope that uh, that fact would, would give the court some pause in attempting to fashion a middle ground test of its own. That's a great point. And one thing I want to bring up is, you know, Justice Kennedy years later, I, at the start of the podcast, I, wrote, I read one of uh, Kennedy's quotes about the Clean Water Act being arguably unconstitutionally vague and, and just kind of expressing his concerns about that and how harsh the penalties are. And he said that, you know, years after Rapanos, and I think even kind of he realizes how vague and problematic the Clean Water Act and the enforcement implementation has been. So let's look at briefly some recent filings that have occurred in the case. And I think it's important for folks to know um, could you just explain some of these recent filings in the Sackett case? And, and in fact, Pacific Legal Foundation just filed something, right? Yes, that, that's correct. So there were two recent filings in the case, one from the government and one from the Sacketts. Um, so th this is a result 
uh, in late December, the Biden administration finalized uh, a new, well, I could call it a new old WOTUS rule. And in fact, that, that rule was actually published in the Federal Register yesterday. Now, that rule, it largely codifies the same regime that was in effect when the Sackett's lot was first doomed, deemed jurisdictional. It's sort of a, an amalgam of both the, the Kennedy and Scalia approaches. And therefore, as a result, it, it's a regime that is largely founded upon the significant nexus test. So before I discuss the, what the government filed related to that, that rulemaking, um, it's, it's worthy of note, going back to the oral argument, uh, during the oral argument, there was a heavy focus on this sort of oblique reference to wetlands adjacent there too, uh, contained in another portion of the Clean Water Act, uh, Section 404G, that was, was added uh, as an amendment in 1977. Now, at the argument, the government argued that this 1977 amendment demonstrated congressional ratification and support for a very broad approach to wetlands jurisdiction. Um, essentially, they argued that this, this oblique reference to adjacency in another section of the statute um, allowed for a, a very broad regulation as, of all wetlands that might somehow be adjacent to a water and understanding that term adjacent in a, in a very broad sense of the term, almost nonsensical sense of the term. Now, perhaps coincidentally, uh, the preamble to the agency's rule that was published in late December contains substantial analysis of the legislative history to those 1977 amendments. And in many ways, it sort of builds on and bolsters uh, the arguments that were made by the government at oral argument in October. Um, it contains a significant analysis of this oblique reference to adjacent wetlands, and it argues that the, the legislative history to the Act supports a reading this, this word adjacency as authorising sort of independent regulation of, of any wetland that might somehow be nearby to a, to a true water. Now, uh, we could probably speculate as to how much of a coincidence the inclusion of this analysis really is. Um, but the most important thing to note is that the agencies filed a, a notice in Sackett when that rule was released to the public. Um, and what they did was they, in that notice, they drew attention to specific portions of the rules preamble that support uh, their position on this adjacency question. So uh, that stuff we were just dis discussing about the legislative history. Very importantly, one thing we noticed is that the agency omitted any reference whatsoever uh, to other pieces of legislative history that might be contrary to their position. And specifically... Uh, the, the led, when the 1977 amendments which added this oblique reference were debated in the House of Representatives, there was in fact uh, a, a degree of controversy over the extent to which so-called adjacent wetlands could be regulated. And in fact, uh, certain members of the, the House opined that adjacency actually means immediate contiguity. So again, wetlands actually touching true waters. So this omitted legislative history, it demonstrates at the very least that this question of, of whether Congress sort of ratified the agency's broad approach is far less clear than EPA would have it. I mean, there's contrary indicators to, to that effect. But it also demonstrates that Congress uh, had in mind a test which is much closer to what the Sacketts are proposing, an actual surface water connection 
to a true navigable water in order to regulate wetlands. So uh, after the government filed their notice, the Sacketts also filed a notice simply drawing the court's attention to the agency's sort of selective uh, use or the, the emissions in the, the legislative history analysis in the preamble to the final rule. So I think it's really important that the timing of the Biden administration rule, and I think it's important for folks to know that this rule is finalized, even though the, the administration knows a second opinion is coming out in a matter of months. Uh, it's interesting to note, and it's like, why did they finalize the rule? Uh, so I guess my question is, Charles, why do you think the Biden administration finalized the new WOTUS rule, even though the second opinion was coming out? And do you think... It just creates even more confusion. Yeah, so it it really does boggle the mind as to why the Biden administration would do this now because the new rule, uh, as, as we sort of discussed, all it does is codify the same approach to Clean Water Act authority that was in effect when the Sackett's lot was deemed jurisdictional. Again, it's a sort of amalgam of both Tess and Rapanos and well, that means is that the significant nexus test underpins the Biden rule in every vital respect. Um, so the, the upshot of that is, is that should the Sacketts prevail in their argument that the significant nexus test is illegal, uh, that would require a significant amendment, if not a total rewriting of the rule. I mean, if, if the significant nexus test were deemed illegal, very little would be left of, of the rule that the Biden administration just published. Seems that they're sort of almost trying to jump the gun on that. Um, but it's also worth noticing, noting that even in the absence of a complete victory for the Sacketts, um, you know, if there was a sort of middle way, like what we were just discussing, uh, it's worth noting that the Biden rule claims to be informed by relevant Supreme Court case law. So um, the Sackett is obviously a major Supreme Court decision which addresses federal wetlands authority. Um, and you've got to wonder how could such a decision not inform the most current rule. So uh, the rule would likely be immediately outdated upon issuance of a, a decision in the Sackett case, sort of no matter what happens in Sackett. Now, just very, very quickly, um, going back to, to what, what you, you mentioned in, in the introduction, is that this rule is in fact the fourth attempt at a notice and comment rule to define navigable waters since Rapanos. Um, the agencies have repeatedly tried and failed to come up with a definition of navigable waters that is true to the statute's requirements and survives judicial review. So what we've experienced for 15 years now is this kind of perennial game of regulatory ping pong, right? A new administration takes office, finalizes a rule. That rule is uh, immediately enjoined by a court, and we go back to the underlying regime, back and forth. So, as you note, the rule certainly, the, the new Biden rule is certainly going to add confusion. In fact, what it's going to do is pile confusion onto 15 years of confusion and continue to victimise uh, the regulated public who have been suffering whiplash every time the agencies have tried and failed uh, to finalise a new approach to navigable waters. I think the the Supreme Court, unfortunately, is in the position where they're they're having to do a job that Congress probably should have done in the first place to clarify this. And uh, unfortunately, the, the agencies just are not willing to 
provide the, the necessary clarity that's actually consistent with the statute. It's just not going to happen You, you as you brought up. And I, I think the fact that the Biden administration even finalized this rule with the uh, opinion coming out just shows kind of a, a complete disregard for the confusion that exists. And in any kind of sense to, to that you can look to the agencies for clarity, I think is just a, a, a big mistake. So unfortunately, I think the Supreme Court is the one that's going to have to provide this clarity. Yes, that, that's a very good point. And I mean, um, it's worth noting that the Sacketts, along with uh, many other uh, regulated entities and individuals, uh, all filed comments during the notice and comment process for this rule, uh, alerting the Biden administration to that fact, basically saying, look, you know, we've been back and forth for 15 years. Every time you, you finalize a new rule that just makes things even more confusing and we have to adapt it at a high cost. And the Biden administration, if you, if you look at the, the preamble to their final rule, and they, they really just sort of brush off that criticism. Um, and it, again, that, that really goes to show exactly like you say, uh, the level of disregard these agencies have for uh, the confusion that they've created among the regulated public. So, Charles, as we wrap up, what are some key points you want the audience to take with them? Are there kind of any additional issues you, you'd like to highlight? Yes. Yeah. So a couple of takeaways. Really, the most important thing to remember here is that whenever we're discussing the government's expansive approach to the Clean Water Act, you know, uh, whenever we're discussing the, the way the government continues to turn the ratchet or continues to flip flop on the operative standard, it's ordinary Americans attempt to engage in everyday land use that are required to shoulder the burden of the government's shifting standards. It's, it's the American public that are stuck in the middle as the government goes back and forth on this. And the Sackett's ordeal is a, a perfect example of, of exactly what that means. Really, it shouldn't take 15 years, two trips to the Supreme Court, and the prospect of millions of dollars in fines uh, to build a single-family home in Idaho. I mean, that's a reality that's, that's absolutely anathema uh, to, to everything that, that we uh, hold as true in this country. Now, you know, in sort of a, a broader takeaway, building on that point, is that the CWA, the Clean Water Act, it really demonstrates everything that's gone wrong with our constitutional order as the unconstitutional administrative state has grown. Uh, we live in a country where the government is bound by the rule of law, you know, where executive branch agencies can't just sort of go rogue and radically expand their own power beyond what Congress has granted them. But here, uh, EPA and the Army Corps have proceeded consistently with no regard whatsoever for the rule of law or the separation of powers. Uh, their approach has been to continually define and expand the bounds of their own authority however they please. And so it's really important thing to remember, takeaway, is that separation of powers requires that the legislative Congress and not unaccountable executive branch agencies determine the country's environmental policies. And that's simply not what's been occurring for the past 50 years. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. That was some great stuff and really clear. I know that many of us are really excited about the pending opinion one way or another. Um, we'll see what happens. Definitely looking forward to it. And I, I'm hopeful. And I want to commend you and Pacific Legal Foundation for your excellent work. 
Once again, I'm Darren Baxt, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and be on the lookout for the next edition coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.